0: Support for this podcast and the following message come from Georgetown's School of Continuing Studies, offering online degrees designed to fit your schedule. All hours, all Georgetown. Learn more at scs.georgetown.edu.
1: Hey there, before we start today's show, we want to tell you about NPR One. It's an app for your phone. It has stuff to listen to on it
2: kind of like pandora for public radio you can listen to a podcast different stories that you like and as you make different choices the app adjusts to suit your preferences
1: the beauty is it uh, gives you the illusion of choice when clearly all of our actions and the shows we listen to have been preordained by fate
2: you can find npr1 in the app store nprone
1: a- any attempt to um, battle fate by saying you know what uh, maybe I will choose, even though I was about to listen to the TED Radio Hour, I will choose to listen to Fresh Air instead. That choice, even though it feels like a rebellion against the path you were on, uh, that that rebellion was is the path. Nothing is real. Not even NPR One.
2: This tale was foretold in the old Greek myth of invisibilia. The 2016 Summer Olympics are finally here. The games begin this weekend in Rio.
1: This happens only every four years, uh, depending on the planet you live on, on Earth, uh, when a year is 365 days. Other planets, it may happen
2: every year or even every day. So to celebrate the arrival of the Olympics, we're going to play some old bits from the last time the Olympics happened. That was in
1: London in 2012.
2: So to begin, we're going to start with uh, Sir Patrick Stewart, who was a torchbearer in the Summer Olympics back in 2012 in London. So, Sir Patrick, just tell us what that experience was like.
3: It was uh, um, a thrilling and really very emotional experience. I was not prepared for that. The the sidewalks were deep, right up to the walls of the shops and buildings and stores, people hanging out of windows on the scaffolding of building sites, on rooftops even. The enthusiasm and excitement and the hunger for people to see the torch and to touch it and, and to get close to it was quite extraordinary.
1: We, we watched some video of you carrying the torch, um, and you, you looked pretty fit. I wondered, did you work out? Did you prepare for this, knowing you were going to be running with the torch?
3: Yeah, I work out anyway. Um, you know, I had 17 years in California, and, uh, <laughs> you know, you work out or die in California. Yeah. And I, I, uh, I, I gave up running, but I really got into power walking, which is what I do um, at least three times a week, maybe four times a week. But running is another issue. I don't run anymore. So I did go into trading. I was running half a mile, given that I I knew I only had 400 meters to go. And I thought if I run half a mile, I can can comfortably run with with a torch in my hand um, 400 meters. But I got off the bus. I was the last one to be dropped. I got off a bus at the bottom of a hill, and my 400 <laughs> meters were entirely uphill. Very unfair, given that I was arguably one of the oldest people to carry the torch right. this year, I think.
2: Yeah, And, and a knight, no less.
3: You, you would have thought, wouldn't you, that the knighthood and my great age, uh, combined with the fact that I am Jean-Luc Picard and Professor Xavier, <laughs> they would have arranged it more comfortably for me.
2: Right. So can you describe the torch for us, how heavy it is, what it looks like?
3: Well, you know, if you will just bear with me for one second of silence. I know silence is anathema on the radio, but you keep talking for... I I do mean two seconds.
2: Okay. Uh Uh-oh.
3: Because I now have in my hand the Olympic torch, which I carried on that day, and I'm just taking it out of its beautiful canvas bag that... It was given to me. And and I am holding in my hand this beautiful, um, I think it's brass, honeycombed, elegantly shaped torch. It's unmistakably a torch. Wait, Um, don't
2: they need that for the Olympics?
3: Okay, I'm going to let you in on a huge secret. There are lots of them, not just one. Um, Every runner gets his own torch. Uh. Every runner. And I think there have been over 8,000 relay torch carriers. So, um a lot of these were made and um they they give you a, a, an opportunity if you wish to purchase your own personal torch when your run is over. Yeah. And it's a beautiful insta object and I'm going to think of some way of mounting it and it has a <clears throat> beautiful brass badge that says London on it and the Olympic Rings 2012. And it's a little scorch mark at the top where the flames came up. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know, I may charge visitors. I may let them run around my garden <laughs> carrying this, and there'll be a small payment, which, of course, I will donate probably to NPR. Hey, oh, okay. excellent!
1: Um, Thank you for that.
3: But they have—it has been decommissioned, so you can no longer light it. It won't flame anymore.
1: Oh,
2: huh.
1: You know, when I was watching the footage of you running with it, and you can see the flame, and I thought, you know, if I were in his shoes, if I were carrying the, this torch, I would be worried the entire time about a gust of wind or something that would make it go out. Were you, were you worried about it?
3: Um, I didn't think about wind, but, guys, I'm an actor, you mm. know. I was carrying the Olympic torch. I wasn't going to, like, carry it by my side you know, where the flame might have singed my beard, I had it elevated up in the air, you know, like I was the original runner at Marathon bringing the news of the victory.
2: Well, now, we are, we're a how-to show, so now, if you could, could you kind of give us, like, maybe a couple tips on how to carry the Olympic torch?
3: Um, yes. First of all, with gratitude, I would say, that you're doing it at all. And then I think it needs um, a good arm elevation with a slight bend in the arm but for safety reasons you need to have it well above your head mm-hmm. however i would recommend you guys are young aren't you you're really youthful oh yeah you, you could probably keep the torch in the same hand i had to switch hands two or three times mm-hmm. because i'm holding it in my hand now and i would say it weighs um i would say it weighs six pounds
2: oh all right okay you're so, not impressed,
3: yeah. are you? I can hear you're not impressed. Well,
2: you're going to feel that after some distance, I would think.
3: Exactly. And I would say maybe the one other piece of advice I would give, and I think this is very important, try really hard not to fall over.
1: Mm. That, that seems good. Yeah,
3: I, I think so. I think perhaps that's maybe the best thing that I can pass on to any of your listeners who find themselves Olympic torchbearers in the future. future try and stay upright.
2: Uh, is was there anything they, the Olympic organizers, told you that you couldn't do while carrying the torch?
3: Uh, well, indeed, um, we all of us signed four pages of restrictions.
2: I one thing I think when you're carrying a torch. If you were to see maybe an elegant woman pull a cigarette out of her purse, are you allowed to walk over to her and say, "Let me get that for you"?
3: Only in your dreams. Yeah. No. All of that is really frowned on. Uh, I, it, is, it is there as a symbol of the uh, Olympic flame carried from Athens. And the flame stays alight all the time. Yeah. Um, even I was the last one to run before lunch. So instead of transferring the fire from one torch to another torch, it was transferred to an oil lamp. Uh, um, like a miner's, like an old-fashioned miner's oil lamp. And that was kept burning all the way through lunch, and then the next torch was lit off the oil lamp and so on. And and um, and I, I find that a rather beautiful and touching symbol, the idea of the eternal flame.
2: Yeah. Well, Sir Patrick, thank you so much for talking to us about this. Can I ask you one dorky question? Oh, dear. Yeah, here it comes. Mm. Let's say you had a sewing machine, and it was broken, and you took it to the repair shop. What would you tell the repairman? What instruction would you give him?
3: Um, I would say, this is a sewing machine. It doesn't sew. Mm -hmm. Make it sew. Yes.
2: Well, again, Sir Patrick, thank you so much for your time, and uh, thank you for uh, carrying the torch for the Olympic Games.
3: Uh, it was a, a, a great thrill. I shall never forget it, and I've enjoyed talking to you.
1: This Friday in Rio is the opening ceremonies. Everybody loves watching the giant spectacle. This always is.
2: A lot of excitement. One thing that you should be on the lookout for uh, are athletes gathering up side by side in little semicircles as they walk around the track.
1: We, we can tell you why they're doing this. Our old producer, Blythe, spoke with U.S. 10,000-meter runner Matt Tegenkamp in 2012.
2: You are
4: stuck on the infield for, like, I don't know, four hours between the procession and uh, actually on the field, and you have nowhere to go. You obviously are staying hydrated and have lots of fluids and realize that it's hot out and you're on your feet forever. And uh, oftentimes you're finding yourself having to go to the bathroom uh, about an hour into the event. And uh, there's really, I mean, there is absolutely nowhere to go. Either people make uh, kind of shields around the person that kind of has to go to the bathroom on the field.
0: Okay, wait, so, so you're saying people are like... Kind of create a half moon or how, how does that work like a full circle
4: like a half moon usually if that starts you'll see a bunch of people running towards you to <laughs> uh to kind of take part in uh relieving themselves
0: <laughs> right right so so what was the uh, specific way you got around that yeah that? and
4: so dathan um dathan ritzenheim who's actually uh also on the ten thousand meter team here in london with his experience in 2004 and 08 he came prepared with uh these like bags of uh like gel inside of them and basically it was uh it just absorbed any fluid and so it was just like he started handing them out to kind of a first come first serve and yeah it was treating it kind of like you would be going a lot like in a water bottle and um, the bags were disposable, and it just the gel just absorbed all the, all the fluid. So it uh, made life pretty easy at that point.
1: So you'll watch the opening ceremonies. You'll see these little walls of athletes. And you'll know all that's happening is they're concealing people peeing into little pee bags. Yep,
2: yeah, we've just blown their secret.
1: All right, let's move on to what you should look for in gymnastics.
2: One thing is little bottles of honey.
1: We spoke to Jeffrey Fowler before the 2012 Games. He's a reporter for the Wall Street Journal.
5: So I was attending the U.S. gymnastics Olympic trials at the end of last month, the beginning of this month in San Jose, and I got what was possibly the best and worst seat in the house, which is right in front of the parallel bars. Yeah. I say it might have been the worst because um, I was under a constant sort of snow of chalk from uh, the (laughs) guys as they would go up there and prepare their bars or do their routines. There was chalk flying everywhere and all over my screen and I couldn't see anything. But it was also kind of the best seat in the house because I really got a front row uh, view of what these guys did to prepare um, to compete, to fly through the air like they do on those parallel bars. Yeah. And right in front of me was a little um, container that said, had a label on it that said honey. And, um, and I started wondering, what is honey? And I noticed a couple of honey bears in there and some honey pots and one other strange-looking tin. And I just started asking questions. And... Um, the guys explained to me what it was all about.
1: So uh, t- tell us how, they, how, how they're using the honey.
5: So uh, one of the most difficult routines that any male gymnast has to do is the parallel bars. So this is the routine, if you're not super familiar with gymnastics, where they have these two bars on the same level, and they're flipping and flying through the air and swinging around on one arm, uh, and then they have to land uh, without jumping. And so it requires a particular kind of upper body strength and also the ability to hold on to the bar, sometimes with just one hand while you're swinging around through the air. Uh, The the gymnasts say that when they want to do that, um, they need everything, every bit of help they can get to keep their hands on those bars. Um, And so they've experimented over many, many years about what are the best kinds of tricks and tools they can use to keep their hands sticking on those bars. They had tried... uh, uh, sugar water, they tried um, molasses, uh, pancake syrup. Uh, <laughs> but many in the U.S. said they really um, had settled on the best material was honey. So,
1: so they're just taking this honey and, and rubbing it on their hands?
5: Uh, not just on their hands. They're also rubbing it on the bars. The first step is to um, get a dab, kind of about the size of a quarter. You put that on your hands, and then you go up to the bar, and you start lathering up the bar with that honey. You add a layer of chalk on top. By the time you sort of put this concoction there, it's um, it doesn't feel sticky like you might think the top of pancakes might feel. It just has a nice kind of grip to it.
1: And so I imagine by the time the last gymnast gets up there, there are just layers and layers of honey and chalk and whatever else they're using. It's
5: disgusting. <laughs> um, it's actually extremely disgusting. And uh, one one part I left out is so. It is the responsibility of uh, the gymnast who comes next to clean off the bars.
1: So is this, this is completely legal? It's not like, you know, they, they can use whatever they want?
5: Um, as, um, as, as we said in our journal story, it is deliciously legal. Um, uh, in fact, some of the guys admitted that they even sometimes will taste a little of the honey if they need a little sugar boost oh. uh, or whatever else they're using.
2: Well, is, there, is there anything they can't, they absolutely cannot bring out?
5: Um, not that I have heard anybody um, identify to me. I mean, I went sort of to the uh, International Gymnastics Federation based in Switzerland, which sets all the rules for gymnastics competitions at the Olympics and elsewhere, and they said they really um, don't have any rules. And the athletes I spoke to, um, although most of the Americans are honey men, uh, most of the athletes I spoke to said uh, that they had seen all kinds of stuff over the years. Uh, one uh, had, had seen some beer being used, a kind of a beer-sugar-water mixture, and oh. um, um, and then another uh, American athlete that I spoke to told me about how, in the mid '90s, he um, he melted down gummy bears and uh, and you know, made a kind of a goop out of them and, and used that to apply to the bar.
1: <laughs> so you're you're a Wall Street Journal reporter. Did you talk to any of these guys about uh, the missed sponsorship opportunities that they could be getting molasses and, and honey endorsement deals?
5: Well, I'll tell you, uh, I, I was really surprised to find out that the uh, Honeymakers had no idea. <laughs> that this was going on. I did speak with the National Honey Board, uh, which uh, oversees honey production in the United States. Um, and they were pleasantly surprised um, and uh, said that, you know, we knew honey had many uses, but this was not one of the ones we knew about. Um, so um, keep, keep your eyes peeled for uh, 2016.
2: One more thing from Jeffrey that we didn't know about gymnastics, the outfits.
1: Yeah, they are not uh, just for fashion.
5: We look at the leotards of the women, they're often sort of sparkly and shiny because they think it helps the the, uh, judges see them better. And oftentimes uh, the men in gymnastics will often wear white pants, not always, but they often like white pants or they prefer white pants because uh, you can't see the chalk on them, which would give away if they'd accidentally (laughs) get into the bar.
1: There there are a lot of people who don't take the sport of race walking seriously. Maybe it's the funny way they walk. Uh but you, there, there's actually a lot more going on in, in the sport than than we realize. Here's Quentin Rue, he's competing in the race walk for New Zealand. Um and, and he tells us that the walk looks funny because it has to.
6: Race walking is essentially just a a normal walking sped up and but to speed up you need to, to use your move your body in in a slightly different way and that gives that distinctive lateral movement of the pelvis um, and the rotation of the spine and the, and the locking of the knees and things. Um, and if you ask someone to walk as quickly as you, they can, um, just just a, a regular person who's never tried race walking before, if, if you ask them to walk as quickly as they can, then quite often they'll do something quite similar to that um, just without thinking about it. Um, and that's just, that's just a product of, of trying to go as fast as you can.
2: Well, no, wait a minute. Now, when people do that and they walk really fast, there are specific rules, right, for race walking that they would probably be in violation of.
6: True. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so that, and particularly, um, the one um, that distinguishes race walking from uh, regular walking uh, is, the, is that you have to land with a straight knee. So your, your knee, so when your heel hits the ground, your front heel hits the ground, the knee has to be straight or locked and it has to stay straight until you, uh, the, the leg passes underneath your body. Um, and so that's the one which, uh, when most, most people are, are street walking, there is a bit of bend in the knee, um, which isn't, isn't the case in race walking. And like you say, you'd be in violation of a of, of one of the rules of race walking, and, and you would be likely to be disqualified.
2: So, Quentin, when you, are, do you ever have this where you're uh, out and about, and maybe you're late, to an appointment or to a meeting, and you don't want to run because there are other people around. Do you find yourself breaking out into a kind of a race walking? Thing?
6: I think um, if I was not going to, if I if I was self, feeling self conscious and not wanting to run because there were other people around, I think I'd feel even more self conscious race walking. <laughs> um, I don't think that, I don't think that would be a good way to be inconspicuous. So Quentin,
2: if I'm going to be watching uh, some race walking now, can you uh, give me some things I should look for as I'm watching the race?
6: People in, in race walking, and I, and I don't know exactly why this is, but but you get a lot more people collapsing in race walks than you do in say marathons. Mm. Um, you know, you still get people pulling out or slowing down or or throwing up in marathons, but um, but you don't get as many people just collapsing from from sheer exhaustion, and um, and so so. In terms of a, a, a spectator thing, it can be kind of heart-wrenching and, and fascinating at the same time, watching these people trying to push through that barrier. Or, um, and sometimes you can, you can see that there's no way they can.
1: Well, Quentin, thank you so much for talking with us.
6: Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you.
2: It's now the part of our show where we would like to take a moment and uh, thank our sponsors, people who pay for these mentions.
1: This message comes from Blue Apron who knows that incredible ingredients make incredible meals.
2: Blue Apron works with a community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, sustainable fisheries, and ethical ranchers to deliver perfectly-portioned seasonal ingredients and easy-to-follow recipe cards right to your door. Choose recipes based on your preferences with no weekly commitment. Check out this week's menu
1: and get your first three meals free, plus free shipping, by visiting blueapron.com everything.
2: Support also comes from Stamps.com. Mailing and shipping can seem like a no-win situation. Trips to the post office are time-consuming, and leasing a postage meter is a nightmare.
1: There's a better way. Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter or package using your own computer. Sign up for Stamps.com for a special offer, a four-week trial, plus
2: postage, and a digital scale. Go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone, and enter everything.
1: All right, moving on to dressage. That's a fancy horse dancing.
2: It's also called ballet for horses. And we talked about this in another episode. And after that, we got this message. Hey, guys, this is Dan from East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, I was recently listening to
1: episode 63 of your show in which you interviewed Olympian Heather Blitz about the Olympic sport of dressage. And I was left with sort of an interesting question, and that is this. Uh, how does one manage to get a horse overseas for the Olympics? Do they travel by boat or plane? Thanks, guys.
2: So here, here's the answer uh, from Heather Blitz. Heather and her horse Paragon were in London for the 2012 Olympics.
0: Actually, it's really simple. They go on a cargo plane, and there's plenty of room uh, in the cargo section. And some of the planes that take horses also have just uh, a normal passenger section in the front of the plane, and many of you that have... Flown across or overseas may have had horses in the back section of the airplane. You didn't even know it. So really, yeah, it's actually a less stressful travel uh, method than being on in a van on the road because there's there's no noise, there's not a lot of vibration, unless you get turbulence. It's really quiet, and they can actually sleep on a plane where they really can't sleep on the road. Wow,
1: it's it's a long flight. Do the flight attendants bring them snacks and drinks? <laughs>
0: the grooms do. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I get to fly with my horse. Sometimes you get to fly with him, and sometimes you don't. It just depends on the arrangements. It's really nice when you do, and I spend a lot of time making sure that, that he doesn't need any more water or any more hay, or I feed him lots of carrots and apples to keep him happy and relaxed, and makes this trip better. And the less they stress, um, of course, the better they compete when they get there. So you want to do everything you can to make it a very nice first-class trip for them.
2: Do they have to share armrests?
0: But
2: they don't have arms. Can you imagine being like the middle horse? I'm always the middle horse.
0: Right. (laughs) They have to share a hay net.
2: Oh, is that what it is? (laughs) Yeah. 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 Hey, we have another sponsor this week. Support for the sciencey stuff you hear on our show comes from Google's Making and in Science Initiative. They've created what they say is a fun new app to help budding makers and scientists measure and explore the world around them. That
1: app is called Science Journal. You can learn about it and find hands-on activities and more about the Making and in Science Initiative at g.co slash sciencejournal app. Or if that link is, is uh, tough to remember, you could Google it
2: using one of our sponsors, Google. Okay, last thing for the Olympics. When you win a gold medal, what do you do with it?
1: Senator Bill Bradley, you have a gold medal.
4: I do have a gold medal, and quite frankly, I don't know where it is. Really? So I don't display mine, but I think it's in a closet somewhere.
2: Well, now, you got one and it says, 1964. Yeah,
4: back in the Paleolithic
2: era. (laughs) (laughs) So, but when you first had it, did you, like, wear it around and stuff?
4: Never. I I put it in a box. It was, I think my parents had it. When they passed away, they gave it to me, and I put it in a closet.
2: So you gave it to your folks? Yeah. But you never, I mean, you were a younger man then. Did you ever use the gold medal, like, out of, like, dates or anything like that? (laughs)
4: <laughs> no, I never did. I didn't have to resort to the gold medal, but uh, I guess it was an option
1: at some point.
2: Okay, fair enough. Well, that does it for this week's show, Ian. What'd you learn?
1: Well, I learned that sometimes when I'm on a flight, uh, there might be a horse back behind me uh, in another section
2: of the plane. Do you, what do you think would be worse, having a baby sitting behind you or a horse sitting behind you on a plane?
1: I bet if you're a horse... You, you're always complaining about legs room like why did they charge me extra for legs room
2: i learned that if i'm ever watching men's gymnastics and i and someone does a good job like my instinct would probably be to shake their hand yeah i, I now know that that's not something i'm gonna do
1: that might be a handshake that uh it was a, it might become a permanent handshake yeah I might be stuck to them forever
2: no we're honey brothers How to Do Everything is
1: produced by Nadia Wilson with technical direction from Lorna White. This week, our intern is Usain Bolt. Uh, Usain, uh, great work. Uh, maybe you should work on your baton passes a bit, but otherwise, um, got everything got everything done quickly. Very f- Almost too fast. Our artist in residence is Justin Witty.
2: You can send us your questions. Send them to us at howto at npr.org.
1: Our website is howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thank you. Well, you've made it through this episode of How to Do Everything.
2: In record time, too.
1: Um, and if you would like to keep listening to something rather than watch the games in Rio, you could listen to the Ask Me Another podcast. have got games, trivia, Puzzles, Loudon Wainwright.
2: All the things you want to hear about, you can listen to on Ask Me Another. It's like trivia night, but a lot more fun. Play along now at npr.org slash podcasts and on the NPR One app. What's the Olympic motto?
1: Bigger, fa- faster, longer. Str-
2: Is that the Olympics? Do it, make it. Da-da, 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 da-da. <laughs> Do it, faster, make it. Do
4: it, it. Do it, make it. All right.